Hi, friends, and welcome to True Crime Storytime. I'm your host, Ivana Estelle. I am really excited. I, I feel like I always say that. Okay, so I need to find another word. I know. But listen, today we are going international, baby. We are leaving the U.S. I've covered a lot of cases, um, D.C., DMV area. But today we're going to Australia. This is something different and out of my wheelhouse, so I really hope that I do Australia justice. Very quickly, before we get started, please stay tuned to the end of the episode. I've got some important announcements. We are on episode 11. I can't even believe we're here. And episode 12 is the season finale. And so I kind of wanted to be able to tell that episode without having to give a bunch of extra info. So please stay tuned at the end of this episode to just kind of get some updates on what to expect. Finally, I want to give a major trigger warning for this entire episode. This case is extremely gruesome. So if you don't think that you can stomach or handle the details that I am going to share, that is completely understandable. I say take a break this week check out another cool podcast, go to my website, check out some other work that I have up there because this is going to be a doozy. I also want to say that I talk a lot about domestic violence in this episode. So another trigger warning for that. If you feel as though this might be a little bit triggering or a little too difficult to hear, I also understand domestic violence is something that is an epidemic in our country, that is an issue across the globe. And I feel it is imperative that I talk about these kind of subject matters on this podcast. But I understand that that can be heavy for listeners. So please, uh, listener discretion is advised. All right, here we go. I have always had an issue with taking too long to tell a story. I struggle to get to the point. I get a little bit distracted. Some may call it a tangent. I feel the need to give you every minute detail of the plot, the players, and the potential problems involved. I've seen friends fidget and family members get distracted as I go down my rabbit hole. But what can I say? I need you to feel exactly what I was feeling when I was told the story or experiencing it or whatever my purpose may be. And in this case, I finally have justification on how much detail you need to know. This is one of the most intense cases I've ever researched, and it is incredibly infamous. When I first heard about it, I thought that I was discovering a serial killer. I thought an act this heinous, this heartless, this cruel must be done by someone who's done it before. But it isn't. This was a one-time kill but everything that led up to it impacts everyone and everything involved. And I just can't leave anything out. Our story begins in Australia. And this is the case of the female Hannibal Lecter. I am telling this story from the perpetrator's point of view. I really need you to get to know Catherine. See, her life wasn't easy, and it was far from usual. Her family was unconventional and oftentimes described as dysfunctional. 
Her mother, Barbara Rohan, originally born Barbara Thorley, had been married to a man named... They lived in a small town called Aberdeen in New South Wales Hunter Valley. Barbara and Jack had a decent marriage on the surface. Jack worked and together they had four sons. Barbara attended to the house and managed the family, but eventually she began an affair with Ken Knight. See, Ken and Jack worked together. They were co-workers, in fact, who'd become friends. The Rohan and Knight families would get together often. They were pretty well known in the very small town. And with the town being small, it was also a bit conservative. At the time, there was less than 2,000 people that even lived there. Which is incredibly small. I mean, that's like the size of my high school. At the time, it was the 1930s and 40s. Something as scandalous as an affair was enough to turn an entire town against you. And that's exactly what happened. Local backlash began and Barbara and Ken eventually were focused and forced to move out together to the town of Moree. Moree was in North South Wales of Australia. It's known for having rich black soil plains. It's a major agricultural area and it's popular for having cotton grow as well as other sellable resources. Allegedly, the pair had found themselves there due to a family secret. See, Barbara's grandmother was apparently an indigenous Australian from the Moree area who married an Irishman. This was a secret considering the fact that the area was pretty racist around that time. But Barbara was proud of that fact. And the city itself is pretty normal. A big sport that's played there is rugby. And one major thing that the city had to worry about was flooding. But that didn't stop Barbara and Kent from building a life together. Barbara's four sons didn't come with her. In fact, her two eldest boys decided to stay with their father, Jack. And the two younger ones were sent to live with an aunt in Sydney, Australia. At the time, it isn't clear whether Ken had children of his own. Barbara and Ken were able to build a family and eventually moved from Moree to Tenterfield, Australia, where they began their family and ended up having four children of their own. The first being twin girls. The younger twin would be named Catherine Mary Knight. The family of six got a little bigger on October 24th, 1959, when Catherine was about four years old. Barbara's first husband, Jack, died, and their two older sons ended up moving in with Barbara and Ken. Barbara liked this. The large family and this feeling of blended atmosphere reminded her of her grandmother and her aboriginal roots. But for the rest of the family, things were kind of tense. The older kids having to adapt to living with their stepfather, who essentially broke up the family with their deceased father, and the age difference just made things difficult. Catherine, even at a young age, kept to herself. Apart from her twin, she was close with her uncle Oscar Knight, who happened to be a champion horseman. However, in 1969, when Catherine was about 14 years old, Oscar committed suicide. From then, Catherine would maintain that his ghost would visit her. That was around the time that the family moved back to Aberdeen, where Ken and Barbara were originally from. Ken didn't necessarily make life pleasant for anyone in the household. See, he was a raging alcoholic. He would openly use violence and intimidation set on the entire family, especially Barbara. He would rape her up to 10 times a day. Oftentimes, Barbara found herself confiding in her young daughters the details of her sex life and how much she hated sex and hated men. 
Catherine recalled this strange relationship with her mother. It confused the way she looked at men. In fact, there was at one point when Catherine was an adult, she had confided in her mom about having sex with a partner and how she was reluctant about it. But apparently Barbara said that Catherine needed to put up with it and stop complaining. As Catherine got older, sex for her was looked at as something that she knew way too much about way too soon. Later in life, Catherine would recall frequently that she'd been sexually assaulted by several members of her family, but maintained it was never her father. She said this continued until she was about 11 years old. Although as time went by, there are doubts about the details that were given to psychiatrists. They do accept her claims that it did happen, and a lot of those events were confirmed by other members of her family. On all accounts, Catherine as a child, despite her major trauma of witnessing abuse at home and being the victim of it herself, was known as a pleasant young girl. She kept to herself and she loved her sister. She gained the nickname Speckled Hen. This would be one nickname of many. She had a couple of friends and spent a lot of her time playing with her dolls. However, she was known to experience uncontrollable rage in response to minor inconveniences. This kind of manifested itself as she entered young adulthood. Catherine went on to attend Muswell Brook High School. She was known as more of a loner. A lot of her classmates recall her being a bit of a bully who stood over small children. There was even a report that she assaulted a boy at school with a weapon and had injured a teacher who had to act in self-defense against her. But when Catherine wasn't in a rage or having a meltdown, she was known to be pretty well-mannered and have good behavior. It was kind of like Jekyll and Hyde. She left school at age 15 and never actually learned how to read or write. In order to make ends meet, she got a job as a cutter in a clothing factory. And about a year later, she scored her dream job, cutting up awful at the local abattoir. For those who don't know what that means or what that is, do you remember that scene in Rocky where he's punching that meat in a freezer? If you haven't seen it in that movie, a lot of shows and media ends up mimicking this scene. But basically, Catherine's job consisted of cutting out internal organs of animals that would eventually be hung and frozen. A pretty intense job, if I do say so myself. I also want you to remember this job because it's going to ring a bell later on in the story. However, despite dealing with dead animals for a living, growing up, her love for the meat industry actually came from admiring her father, who also worked at an abattoir. When she was little, she actually used to take care of animals. She would pick up injured strays like small birds or little creatures like that, and she would take them home and nurse them back to health. Unsurprisingly, Catherine was really good at her job at the abattoir. So good, in fact, that she was promoted pretty quickly and was given her own set of butcher knives. She was known to hang the knives above her bed at home and would say things like, I always want to have them handy if I need them. This was a habit that she continued no matter where she lived. In 1973, Catherine was 18 years old. She had a round face and would wear large glasses. She was a pretty solid figure with round rosy cheeks and sandy blondish brown hair that was loosely curled. You can probably imagine the hairstyles in the 70s. Now put that on your average 18-year-old. Despite her different job and particular lifestyle, Catherine kind of came off pretty inviting. 
she had a nice welcoming smile and she photographed well. She seemed charming. Which is why Catherine and David Stanford Kellett really hit it off in 1973. David was a hard drinker and oftentimes Catherine would drink with him. Their relationship was looked at as passionate. Catherine dominated him. She felt a sort of protection over him with anything. On nights where they would drink, if a fight broke out, Catherine would often step in and defend David. In the small town of Aberdeen, she was renowned as offering intense combat at anyone that pissed her off. Catherine was 19 in 1974 when she and David Kelly got married. It was actually her idea and the couple arrived to the service on a motorcycle. David was completely wasted and upon arrival, Barbara gave David some lasting advice. From what he could remember in his drunk stupor, he recalled Barbara telling him, you better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. He recalls being absolutely shocked by this notion of Catherine's mother. Barbara went on to continue to say that Catherine had a screw loose somewhere. And it looks like she wasn't too far off because on their wedding night, Catherine tried to strangle David. And here's the thing. Everyone has their kinks, but this wasn't a sexual rendezvous. In fact, the couple had had sex three times that night, and eventually David, after a long day of the wedding, fell asleep. So Catherine was so frustrated that she strangled him in order to get him to go another round. This set the tone for a violent marriage. The two would argue and on occasion would have to have breaks or need space from each other, but it never lasted long. In 1975, Catherine became pregnant with her first child. She and David were pretty ecstatic. However, it didn't slow down any of the fighting. In fact, a heavily pregnant Catherine once burned all of David's clothes and shoes before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan because he had arrived home late from a darts competition after he'd made the finals. He was like really excited about this competition. His heavy drinking didn't allow him many hobbies and this was something that he was pretty proud of. David's drinking had actually stemmed from two really traumatic incidences. One that happened at a railway job and another when his best friend was killed in front of him. In regard to the railway job, he actually was a hero. He rescued injured occupants off of a school bus that a train had run into, but six children were killed. Eventually, David lost his job due to his deteriorating behavior and bad work performance. And that's how he ended up working at the nearby abattoir, where he met Catherine. In fact, he was pretty friendly with the entire Knight family. He was especially close with Catherine's brother. So to come home and argue with his wife was heartbreaking in itself. The violence that ensued after Catherine hit him in the head convinced David that he may be in a situation of major danger. He ended up being treated for a fractured skull after collapsing at a neighbor's house. Police were going to charge Catherine, but she switched and went back to being normal and sweet. The girl that David had fallen in love with. So police eventually dropped the charges at the request of David. In May of 1976, Melissa Ann was born. But shortly after, David left Catherine and the baby for another woman and moved to Queensland. Queensland was a, was a bit different from Aberdeen. 
<laughs> Aberdeen is small. It's a quaint town where Queensland is an entire state with about 5.1 million people living there. It's often the place suggested to go visit with many destinations and cool events. And David honestly left because he wanted to start a new life. He was really tired of the abuse, and even though it meant leaving Melissa, he needed to get away from Catherine. But this didn't last long. See, Catherine began to act out. She was often seen pushing her baby in her small carriage extremely violently down Main Street. She was actually admitted to the St. Elmo Hospital in Tamworth, and she was diagnosed with postnatal depression. She spent several weeks recovering, and even then, upon release, she left baby Melissa on a railway line shortly before a train was coming. It isn't clear if this was a moment of psychosis or just another way to try to stick it to and hurt David. Though Melissa survived, Catherine continued to act more and more violent. Seriously, this is only the beginning. The very same day of the railroad incident, Catherine grabbed an axe, went into town, and threatened to kill people. Oh, and I didn't mention the way Melissa survived. See, a man by the name of Old Ted, the town was so small that everyone knew who he was, was foraging near the railway and was able to rescue Melissa minutes before the train passed. By the time Melissa was in safe hands, Catherine was arrested and put back in St. Elmo's Hospital. However, she recovered and was able to sign herself out the very next day. A few days later, Catherine's reign of terror continued. She slashed the face of a woman with one of her knives and demanded that this woman drive her to Queensland to go get David. The woman was actually able to escape after they stopped at a service station and police arrived to arrest Catherine. But by that point, she'd actually taken a little boy hostage and was threatening him with a knife. Once police were able to disarm her, she was able to be admitted to the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. Catherine would tell the hospital staff that she intended to kill the mechanic at the service station who repaired David's car. See, in Catherine's mind, David got his car repaired and was able to leave to go to Queensland. Catherine went on to say that she planned on killing David and his mother and the other woman when she arrived in Queensland. Police informed David about Catherine's threats in order to protect himself. However, it did the exact opposite. In fact, David left his girlfriend and drove immediately back to Aberdeen to be able to take care of his mother and reunite with Catherine. About a month or so later, Catherine was released from the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital on August 9, 1976, and she was put in the care of her mother-in-law as well as David. The two moved to Ipswich, a city that's west of Brisbane. I'm not necessarily familiar with Australia and the geography, but from what I can see, it's about seven and a half hours away. And I know it feels like I kind of glossed over the fact that Catherine was literally threatening to kill David and his mother and then was signed out of the psych ward to go stay with David and his mother. I'm not really sure about the thinking back then or if or how seriously mental illness was considered. I also want to take into consideration the fact that abuse where the man is the victim, and especially if it's at the hands of a woman, can sometimes not be taken as seriously. Domestic violence is a dangerous issue, and there are thousands of people across the U.S. and millions in the world that have fallen victim. And no matter who it is, physically or verbally assaulting someone is never okay. I really don't know if David felt like he had to take Catherine back to protect Melissa and his mother. 
I'm not sure why the police weren't able to get involved or why the police and hospital even allowed her to be signed out the very next day to the people that she threatened. But for whatever reason, Catherine went home and by all accounts in the new city of Ipswich, life seemingly calmed down. At least there weren't any reports of violence, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't anything happening. Catherine was able to obtain a job at a Meeks Works place and was able to kind of get back into her normal butchering routine. By this time in the early 1980s, Melissa was about five years old. And on March 6, 1983, David and Catherine had another daughter named Natasha Marie. However, it would be a year later that Catherine broke up with David. In fact, it all kind of seemed sudden. She moved to her parents' house in Aberdeen and then rented a house near Muscle Walbrook. The rocky relationship had seemed to come to an end, and it didn't seem like David really put much of, of a fight to keep it going. Catherine actually returned to work at the same abattoir that she was at when she initially met David. But on the job, she ended up injuring her back and was able to get disability pension, which meant she no longer needed to live close to her work because the government had begun paying for her housing in Aberdeen. It seemed like Catherine was kind of getting her life on track, and that's when she met David Saunders. Now, to keep things a little organized and not add more chaos to this already pretty chaotic story, I'm going to refer to this David by his last name, Saunders. Catherine was 31 at the time when she met 38-year-old Saunders. In 1986, Saunders worked as a minor. In a few months after meeting, the two moved in together. Saunders spent a lot of time with Catherine and her daughters, and he had become somewhat of a father figure, although he still kept his old apartment. His apartment was actually kind of far. It was in Scone, Australia, but he made it comfortable and had a life in Aberdeen with Catherine. However, their relationship would become volatile. Catherine had a jealousy and felt the need to control Saunders. I can't tell you what it was about him. I haven't been able to find any photos of him, so I'm not sure if it had to do with looks, personality, or if Catherine just continued to need a sense of control. But it got worse as time went on. They created a violent pattern where Catherine would become incredibly jealous when Saunders was not around and would eventually throw him out of the apartment, which would land Saunders back to his own apartment and the two would make up and she would beg him to return. In May 1987, it had been a year since the two had started dating, and Catherine had shown her most violent, volatile side yet. I'm going to add an extra trigger warning here for violence against animals. In a fit of rage, Catherine crept over to Saunders' apartment, where she cut the throat of his two-month-old dingo pup in front of him. There was not exactly a reason for it. The two had been in an argument However, Catherine said that it was to be thought of as an example of what would happen if he ever cheated on her. Moments later, Catherine then lifted a frying pan and knocked it across Saunders' face, rendering him unconscious. However, the couple stayed together, and after that, in June 1988, in fact, Catherine gave birth to her third daughter, Sarah. This prompted Saunders to put a deposit down on a house. He wasn't going to leave her, and he wasn't going to leave his daughter. Catherine actually paid off the deposit, 
with her workers' compensation that came around in like 1989. And it felt like for the first time, Catherine had a real home to call her own. In fact, she decorated the house head to toe in animal skins, skulls, horns. There were leather jackets hung across the walls, old boots sitting on shelves, machetes in every closet. I mean, there was no space on the ceiling to the floor that wasn't covered in something regarding animals. To give you a sense of how terrifying this looks, a famous serial killer by the name of Bob the Butcher had a similar basement that had animals all over the walls. They'd been hunted and they were considered his trophies until he moved on to something much, much more sinister. However, despite the decorated home and Saunders and Catherine's one daughter, the couple were slowly but surely coming to a head. After an argument where Catherine hit Saunders in the face with an iron and stabbed him in the abdomen with a pair of scissors, Saunders decided that he had had enough and he moved back to Scone. He was planning to just take some time off and think things through, but he didn't want to abandon his daughter. However, by the time he returned to Aberdeen, Catherine had cut up all his clothes, and honestly, this terrified Saunders. He actually took a long service leave from his job at the mine and went into hiding. Catherine tried searching for him, but no one would tell her his whereabouts. Like I mentioned at the beginning, Aberdeen was a small town. People knew Catherine, and they knew what she was capable of. Well, at least they thought they knew. They were going to protect Saunders at all costs. Eventually, Saunders returned and came out of hiding to see his daughter, Sarah. And that's when he found that Catherine had actually gone to the police and unjustly told them that Saunders was the one abusing her. They eventually issued what's called an apprehended violence order, which is basically similar to a restraining order against him. And it isn't clear if he ever got to see much of Sarah after that. Now, here's where the timeline gets a little bit fishy, because in some sources, Catherine became pregnant by a man named John Chillingworth in 1997, and others say 1990. I'm going to say that based on the ultimate crime that Catherine commits, and the basic timeline of how everything else kind of goes, that this happened in 1990, which would have made Catherine about 35 years old. John Chillingworth was 43 years old at the time, and the two had met at the abattoir. Their relationship in the beginning seemed merely carnal. The two would meet up at the local hotel in Aberdeen. At the time, he was pretty unaware of her violent needs and the past abuse that her previous partners had experienced. Their relationship was pretty stormy though, and by the time his friends had let him know exactly what Catherine had a reputation for, it was a little bit too late. The two ended up having a son named Eric in 1991. However, their relationship wouldn't last long because eventually Catherine started having an affair with another Aberdeen local, John Pricey Price. After three years of dating John Chillingworth, Catherine ended up leaving him, admitting to the affair. Again, we are faced with two people with the same name, but from here on now, we are focusing on John Price, our victim. When John met Catherine, he was already the father of three children. In fact, in 1988, he had separated from his wife, Colleen. John was a popular guy. He was known to be likable and generous. He was handsome with curly brown hair. He often wore a gold bracelet around his wrist. John did well for himself. He worked at the Howick Mines in Aberdeen, and he made a good living. 
In fact, he'd even acquired a comfortable brick home in St. Andrew Street, which had been left to him by his former wife. The two had gotten along so well, and the divorce was so amicable that Colleen didn't really have an issue with John keeping the home. But regardless of the fulfilling life that John had, he was lonely, and meeting Catherine, he quickly fell for her charm. In 1995, after two years of dating, which includes the affair that they were having, John asked Catherine to move in with him. At the time, they were both 38, and to be honest, it isn't clear whether John knew that Catherine was having an affair or not. But it was pretty obvious that John was really in love with her. And Catherine, she was in love with, well, who's to say? It's evident about one thing. She really liked John's lifestyle. His house was considered luxurious to hers. I mean, compared to that very small cottage, it's not surprising. And at first, the couple actually were going pretty strong. It was almost as if Catherine had thrown away all the violence from years before. But as we know, abusers always end up showing their true selves. However, it hadn't been that way in the beginning. In fact, she treated him extremely well. She would do all the things that a loving partner does. They'd even been known to have very exciting sex. I mean, John had felt like he'd really met the love of his life and that love was coming around a second time. But... That honeymoon phase ended pretty quickly, especially as Catherine's drinking began to rear its ugly head. Catherine would have this irrational and venomous need for revenge. She would do the same pattern of getting really angry and really violent and taking it out on John. And the time was, at the time it was a pretty full house. Catherine's children would be back and forth from their dads to Catherine's and John himself had two older children that lived with him. They seemed to get along with Catherine and honestly, John made enough money that everyone could live comfortably in the home. But eventually Catherine was tired of playing house. In fact, she proposed the two of them get married on a couple different occasions, but each time John declined. The violence in their relationship concerned him, and he also wanted to make sure that his home went to his children should something happen to him. This made Catherine increasingly aggressive. Catherine began to control every aspect of John's life. He found himself more reclusive. In fact, he spent a lot less time with friends. All of this came to a head in 1998, when one night the couple were fighting. Of course, at the time, John's kids were home too. In fact, Catherine had videotaped items John had stolen from work and sent that videotape to his boss, which got him fired. The items included medical kits, but they were outdated. In fact, a lot of things that were office junk. However, the damage on reputation was done, and after 17 years, John was fired. However, a few months later, John and Catherine rekindled their relationship. Catherine, who was living back at her own home, at the time, moved back in with John, and the two wanted to work their relationship out. However, the fighting continued to be more frequent and more volatile, and John was basically left with no one to really turn to. February 29th, 2000, had marked seven years that John Price and Catherine Knight had been together. However, the fights and the abuse at the hands of Catherine had not subdued, and John had had enough. During an argument, Catherine ended up stabbing John in the chest at their home. And of course, John's children were there and 
Though he survived, he was terrified. And he was tired. He kicked Catherine out of his house and that very same day stopped at the Scone Magistrate's Court on his way to work and took out a restraining order. He needed to keep Catherine away from himself and his children. That very same afternoon, John went to work. He told his co-workers exactly what had happened and explained that he was officially done with Catherine, that he couldn't take this violence anymore. And I honestly can't even believe that he even went to work after being stabbed. I feel like I call out of work for any slight inconvenience, but something as significant as being stabbed, I definitely would have taken a week off. John continued to talk to his co-workers and told them that he was honestly terrified, regardless of the restraining order. He feared for his life and that if anything happened to him, it was at the hands of Catherine. She was the culprit. John's co-workers were honestly really scared. In fact, they pleaded with him to not go home that day. They offered that he stayed with them or stay at the local hotel. But going back to the place that he lived that Catherine could possibly have access to was not where he should be. But John said that he had to protect his children. He didn't want to risk Catherine breaking in and hurting them. So that evening, John drove home. He slowly made his way down the windy roads, pulling into the driveway and unbuckling a seatbelt. He walked to the front door and turned his key into the lock, opening the door to find, to his relief, an empty home. Catherine was not there herself. However, she sent all the children out for a sleepover at a friend's house. John felt like he could relax. He spent the day, or the rest of the day, and the evening with his neighbors, eating, drinking, watching some TV, before deciding to go to bed at about 11 p.m. Catherine had had a day herself. She'd gone shopping, bought some new black lingerie. She'd even taken the kids out and videotaped them while spending time together. Apparently, that videotape was able to be picked up, and some of the things that Catherine was saying were pretty crude and inappropriate. However, it hasn't been disclosed, at least for me to see or for you all to find, um, anything in particular that she said. So I won't be able to share it with you. It just seemed like Catherine was trying to have a bit of normalcy, at least in her own way. Late that night, after 11 o'clock, Catherine made her way to John's home. She was able to let herself in and sat on the couch and watched TV for a few minutes. She then made her way to the bathroom, turned on the shower, and let the steam run. She showered and dried herself off, putting on lotion and perfume, and then slid into bed, laying next to John, where she woke him up softly. The two began to have sex, and eventually John fell asleep. Catherine turned over, took a butcher knife from next to her bed, where she always kept them, and began to press into John's chest. She continued to stab him 37 times, over and over and over. Blood completely consumed the sheets, seeping into the mattress and spilling against the headboard. At one point, John woke up between blows, his own blood spattering across his face. John attempted to fight her off. With no prevail, he tried lifting his body, staggering downstairs to the front door. A bloody handmark print was left on the doorframe, but he succumbed to his wounds. And that is when Catherine dragged his body from the floor, thump, thump, thump. John's head bounced against the ground. Catherine sat John's lifeless body at her feet. And that's when she began to get to work. She was back in the abattoir again. Catherine began skinning John. As she cut off his skin, she hung his body from a meat hook in the living room. 
Catherine then decapitated John and cut his body up into pieces. She planned to make a meal. Catherine whisked her way to the kitchen, pulling out a pot, sitting it on the stove, and letting the flame begin. Water boiled to the brim, and Catherine slowly took out a dish with potatoes, pumpkins, beets, zucchinis, cabbage, squash, and gravy. She then began to make a dish for herself, plating all the contents, and in the midst of that, walked back to the living room. She slowly made her way to the cabinet and felt for a bottle of pills. That is when she cocked her head back, took a handful, walked past the bloody mutilated corpse that was John Price to the bedroom. Catherine closed her eyes and then there was darkness. The next morning with no sign of John, his coworkers were incredibly alarmed, especially after what he'd said to them the day before. John was currently working at Bowditch and Partners, a leading excavation and earth-moving contractors company. Anything with construction similar to mining, you have to be up pretty early to get on the job. At that same moment, around 6 a.m., a neighbor noticed that John's white Ford sedan was still in the driveway. This neighbor spent most of his mornings getting up early, grabbing a cup of coffee, and taking a leg of his neighborhood home. So seeing John's car there was strange. John was known to be extremely punctual, so when he didn't arrive at work and seemed to still be home, there were multiple people that were concerned. An employer from John's job was sent to the house to go check on him. At this time, it's 2000, which means cell phones are still pretty new. So it's not clear whether John had a cell phone or if they had tried calling the landline, but this coworker and neighbor went to knock on John's front door. That's when they looked down and noticed. The front door had blood on it. Immediately, they called the police. Police rushed to the home and looked at the scene. At least on the front door, there was blood smeared across. And the police knew they needed to act fast. They immediately broke the back door down in case there was anyone still inside. That is when Sergeant Furlonger and Senior Constables Maud and Matthews saw the most horrific scene they had ever witnessed in their collective years of experience. The St. Andrews Street property would soon be flooded with police cars, and it was time to investigate the most horrific murder in Australia so far. The St. Andrews Street property would soon be flooded with police cars, and it was time to investigate the most horrific murder in Australia so far. Sergeant Furlonger entered the premise with his weapons drawn and his team trailing behind him. The first thing that he saw was blood. Blood everywhere. A large pool of it near the entrance of the foyer, dripping its way towards the living room. Upon closer inspection, Sergeant Furlonger saw something hanging. It wasn't a curtain or a jacket, but it had a thick material. That was when he realized. It was John Price's exterior layer of skin hanging from a meat hook. One of the officers screamed, Oh my gosh, she skinned him. It was a human cloak. It had been removed expertly and precisely in one piece. The police officers moved closer into the home, and that's when they found more of their remains. John's decapitated head had not been found, but other pieces of him were sprawled across the floor. The lounge room was covered with his insides, and whatever was left of him was raw and bloodless. It was as if he'd completely been drained. 
like someone had cut him open and all the blood had just poured out. In fact, his body parts were also concerning. His left arm was draped over an empty 1.25 liter soda bottle and his legs were crossed humanely as if whoever did this left a lasting piece of humility in the terror that they created. Eventually, the police slowly continued into the house. It was warm and reeked. The blood had started to dry just a bit and their shoes pressed against the floor. Their eyes peered into the kitchen of horrors, finding a butcher's knife close by. Two more knives actually were later on found in the kitchen. The police moved throughout the home, and that's when they noticed it wasn't just the smell of decomposure, but it smelled like food. Something was cooking. There was a large pot sitting on the stove, still warm. The police officer slowly removed the lid, and there at the brim of the water was John Price's skinned head, along with an array of vegetables that Catherine had cut up the night before. That wasn't the only part of his body that had been cut. Catherine had cut multiple parts of John's flesh and had three set plates at the dinner table. Along each plate, there was a single note sitting neatly next to it. Each one of them had the name of his children written on it. Many of the surfaces were bloodstained, but the notes seemed to be decently pristine. There was also an empty Tuhi's brand beer stubby, a packet of Winfield Red cigarettes, and a black wallet belonging to John, sat on the bench. A third piece of cooked meat was found in the backyard, which other officers had discovered. The police officers scattered around the rest of the home before touching anything or even looking at the notes. They checked the bathroom and found that it was empty, except for a simple black nightie that was tossed on the side of the bathtub. Everything was heavily bloodstained, but there was no sign of anyone. And then they heard it. A rumble but more specifically, a snore. It was coming from the main bedroom. The police peered through the bedroom door, flicked the light switch on, and the entire room lit up. Red illuminated everything. The walls and curtains were bloodstained, and there lied Catherine Knight, who was fully clothed on the double bed. The police took a couple steps back, staring at her. As their eyes met, Catherine lifted her hands. She was handcuffed. Catherine immediately went to the hospital to tend to her wounds and check her health. Among the crime scene, police noticed that the positions of cutting on John's body was pristine. The skinning was done as if an expert did it, which was ironic considering the fact that Catherine worked at an arbitrary for many years. She was used to decapitating and dismembering animals. She did it for a living. John's entire skin was intact, including his nose, ears, genitals, mouth, and hair, and police knew that Catherine had some explaining to do. There's a steel frame photo from Catherine's interview talking to the police. She's in a black t-shirt and is sitting upright pretty confidently. It looks like she's beginning to tell a story and give an explanation for exactly what happened. But what exactly would she say? There was no sign of a break-in, and it was clear that no one else could have done this but Catherine. Catherine explained to officials that she'd woken up from a coma-like state after taking pills. It turned out that these pills were antidepressants and antihistamines. They made her dizzy and drowsy, and that she'd taken them with the intent to end her own life. 
Catherine was immediately taken to the hospital for medical treatment, and she eventually recovered. The case was given to Detective Muccio. He was pretty positive he knew what happened. Catherine had murdered John Price. She had skinned and decapitated him and cooked his head and served it and portions of his buttocks on plates for herself and his two children that lived at home. She had had her own plate of him before taking the pills and going to bed. Luckily, the kids never came home to see the house or the notes to see what had happened. It was eventually uncovered that the note was poorly written and said, quote, Time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You to Beck for Ross, for little John. Now play with little John penis, John Price. These allegations of John sexually assaulting his children or Catherine's children were all baseless. There was no evidence of any of this and was starting to look like something that Catherine had written to justify what she'd done. An autopsy revealed that John was skinned with a razor-sharp knife. The knife was inserted just under his collarbone and sliced horizontally across the top of his body from the shoulder to the shoulder. It was a straight clean cut with precision. The knife then turned and cut down the chest and over the stomach to the pubic hairline. It was a T-shaped straight line. The knife was caught around the pubic area, careful not to cut his penis or genitals. After that, the killer held the arms up and cut down the back and across John's head. After the skin was peeled off and the head and hair was gone, it exposed John's intestines. John was not alive during the skinning. He'd already been dead. But this attack would have left the killer covered in blood. It was an incredibly sticky, messy job and took about 40 minutes. Detective Muccio continued to question Catherine with this knowledge, and she denied having any recollection of what happened that night. She said that she arrived at the house and that the two had had sex, and then she went to bed. She didn't have any recollection of the suicide attempt and had spent a majority of time recuperating in the psychiatric wing of the hospital. There were some strange discoveries that the police uncovered. It seemed that John was missing $1,000 from his bank account. At some point in the night, Catherine had gone to Aberdeen Bank and withdrawn $1,000. However, it's not clear when this happened, whether it was before the attack or after. In fact, all of this just seems confusing and convoluted. First, Catherine says she was... First, Catherine says she has no recollection of anything of that night. And then, at one point, she admits that she was taking pills to take her life. And all the while... Catherine continued to claim her innocence. Police, of course, did not buy it. John had just placed a restraining order the day before he was murdered, and the last person seen in the house was Catherine. She was arrested for the murder of John Price, and her trial began on October 2001. Catherine had spent a year in jail. In fact, during February of 2001, the charge of murdering John had actually been negotiated to offer a guilty plea for manslaughter, Catherine's trial was originally set for July 23rd, 2001, but it was actually adjourned due to her counsel's own illness and made it to October 15th, 2001. Before the trial commenced, a psychiatric evaluation was done on Catherine. Two psychiatrists diagnosed Catherine with borderline personality disorder, as well as intense anger, depression, and PTSD. However, regardless of these diagnoses, she was deemed sane and able to fit and stand trial. 
The judge also agreed that the diagnosis did not explain the time and full circumstance of the killing. The judge believes that it comes from factors that were not associated with borderline personality disorder. This, again, is according to the judge. I don't have enough knowledge on BPD to have an input. During the trial, the prosecutors explained that Catherine murdered John and prepared his body for dinner. She'd made dinner and baked his body parts in the oven, as well as cooking him outside. They believe that Catherine showed no mercy and had some sort of enjoyment in this entire debacle. They believe that Catherine is incredibly dangerous and if released in the community would kill again. Justice Barry O'Keefe offered 60 jury prospects the option of being excused during the photographic evidence of this case. Five of them accepted. The case was so gruesome that some people couldn't bear to even see it. When the witness list was read out loud, it included so many people that Catherine had crossed paths with. After that list was given, Catherine's attorney spoke to the judge who adjourned for the day. The next morning, Catherine changed her plea to guilty and the jury was dismissed. Between the psychiatric assessment and the list of witnesses, Catherine's legal team had originally planned to claim amnesia or disassociation, but both of those were now going to be out. There wasn't truly a reason why they decided to now go ahead and just use the guilty plea, but I guess it was a simple fact that everything was stacked against Catherine, and it was pretty clear that she'd been behind this and she was coherent and knew what she was doing. On top of that, Catherine hadn't shown any remorse. She also refused to accept responsibility for her actions despite the plea. Eventually, the sentencing hearing came around and Catherine's lawyers requested that she be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts of the case. They were still under the explanation that she wasn't completely coherent during the act. But that was shut down and Catherine had to listen to every single detail. Dr. Timothy Lyons took the stand to describe the autopsy. The entire room fell silent. It was when he began discussing the skinning and decapitation that Catherine became hysterical and had to be sedated. On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe explained that the nature of the crime and Catherine's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced Catherine to life imprisonment and refused to allow any chance for parole. In fact, on Catherine's papers from 2001, it says never to be released. That's the first time in Australia history that a woman was imposed to this magnitude. As a collective, it was agreed by law enforcement, judge, attorneys, that the policeman that had to enter 84 St. Andrew's home on March 2000 saw something that they never should have seen. It was absolutely sickening and stayed with a lot of officers for the rest of their careers. It was the true definition of a hell house. So, the question is, what was the motive? We know that Catherine has a history of violence and she grew up in a difficult environment, but the court has some theories. Catherine wanted John's money. She wanted his home, she wanted whatever money he had left, and she wanted complete control. She was willing to go at any length to have that. And in a fit of rage, she ended up doing the unthinkable, murdering him in the most intimate, horrific way. Honestly, it also seemed pretty premeditated. She had allowed the kids to go out of the house she bought a nundi, she went to the home late at night after John was sleeping, and the aftermath of that was unexplainable. The overkill made no sense, but yet seemed calculated. In fact, the idea that they could not even completely collect all of John because she had eaten part of him. She had not just cooked him symbolically, but consumed a piece of him. 
It was the first case of cannibalism in Australia. Catherine had completely taken violence to a whole nother level, and it was as if she was a little bit proud of her work to be able to cut up a body in that way. And just the way she treated him shows how little care she truly had for him. Police recall finding pieces of him in the microwave. A small quantity of thick brown liquid similar to gravy was inside of a coffee cup. The substance was spread across cutting boards. It was like Catherine took so much effort into cleaning and dismantling John and then left the entire home in chaos. A home that would never fully be hers. It was a message. It was clearly Catherine's doing. For her to say that she wasn't guilty and not take responsibility is ridiculous. There was a 31 centimeter yellow plastic knife handle that had broken off and it clearly belonged to her. It was tossed by the arm of John. There was another blade that was 17.5 centimeters and it looked like it had been devoted to taking out the organs of John. There were wounds present on the body that John had received a couple days prior. All the blades belonged to Catherine, and the final thing that stood out was adjacent to the shoulders of John was a black handle sharpening stone, as if Catherine had sharpened the knives prior. There was also Winfield Blue cigarettes found in the living room, so she calmly and leisurely smoked a cigarette, sharpened her knives, and began her mayhem. It was utter evil. To go back to the kitchen for a final time, amongst the blood and mess, there was also a single broken picture frame containing a photo of John. It's not clear whether Catherine broke it while she was committing the murder or after in another fit of rage, but whatever the reasoning, it symbolized something. How little of care Catherine had and just how much of a monster she truly was. In June of 2006, Catherine appealed the life sentence, claiming that the penalty of life in prison without the possibility of parole, was too severe for the killing period. Of course, this is a mere six years after she'd done what she did. Justices Peter McClellan and Michael Adams at Megan Latham dismissed the appeal in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeals. And since then, Catherine has spent her life in jail. Catherine is currently 67 years old. She has spent her days in prison, and it isn't clear what's come of her four children. Since the murder, Catherine hasn't spoken out. There hasn't been much of a response from her. Although there have been countless documentaries and podcasts covering this case, Catherine is still alive at the Silverwater Women Correctional Center in Sydney. She's known by some of the other inmates as Nana, and she's in a maximum security prison where she will never be free. I've given a lot of gruesome detail in this case, but we have to remember that John Charles Thomas Price was a real person. He had a job and he would go home routinely. He would check in with his neighbors. They knew him well enough to know that it was odd that his car was in the driveway that morning. He had kids that he loved and his home he worked incredibly hard for. He didn't deserve what happened to him. In fact, no one does. This is something out of a Saw movie. None of the men that were covered in this case deserved the abuse they received. Not David Kellett, not David Saunders, not John Chillingworth, and especially not John Price. He was known as Pricey to friends and family, and anyone that knew of him spoke highly of him. He enjoyed a nice beer and spending time with his loved ones. He had a personality that people just gravitated towards. I want John to be remembered like that. I don't want this horrible act completed by a sadistic person who now is lovingly called Anna to be his last marks on this earth.
What happened to him was horrible, but he was long gone before Catherine could continue her humiliation and mutilation of his body. John should be remembered as being a great father, someone who worked at a mining business for 17 years and then got another job where he made friends and had a routine. There are things he should have experienced. He should be a grandfather. He should have been able to retire comfortably. He should have been able to travel if he wanted to. And yet he was the victim of domestic violence. Domestic violence on any level is completely and utterly wrong. And it happens to so many people and it goes unseen and unheard and underaddressed. Just because it was a woman who was doing it doesn't make it any less dramatic or serious. And just because a man was a victim does not make it any less severe. These men were in emotionally and physically abusive relationships. And three of them were able to survive. Yeah, sure, they're lucky. But they're also deeply traumatized. There are kids that are left without a mother and a father due to this heinous act. And that needs to be acknowledged. In 2016, it was announced that a film would document the life of Catherine Knight. I'm not sure if this is outside of the documentary that was made on like the murders, but I honestly hope that it doesn't happen. Whenever we see TV shows based off of killers, we kind of think that it's fictional. We forget that it really happened and certain people become glamorized who shouldn't be. So I hope if anything is taken from this case today, it's that the importance of speaking out will help someone. If you find yourself in a situation that doesn't seem safe, know that you're not alone. There are people that love you and care about you, and you deserve help and freedom from that. On Price's family had to plan a horrific funeral for him, and he was gone way too soon. He was only 44 years old. Story lives in infancy. We have to remember that these are real people that I cover in these cases. This was a horrible thing that happened 22 years ago. And with that, the lesson in this story should be to look out for one another and don't underestimate the danger. It can be in a person that you never even realized. Thank you all so much for joining me today. So I, that was a lot. Wow. Okay. I tried to record these in one sitting, so like that was a lot. Let me take a minute. Okay, and we're back. Thank you again for joining me today. I want to just give a couple announcements first. The first being that this, like I said, is our 11th episode, and I have 12 episodes in a season. Next week, I will be covering a case, and I just don't want to add anything extra um, or fill you guys in on things that you don't really need. Yada, yada, yada. Like I said before. Things don't really change. Uh, next season isn't going to be something that's like completely different. I won't have like a co-host or anything. It'll still be this type of momentum that we're going on. But I am going to take a break after episode 12. I'm just going to take a week off, recuperate. I always have to have like themes or something different within each season without actually changing like the flow of the show. So uh, please message me if you have any ideas or any things that you might want me to cover. I love to hear it. I have like friends and family that like all send me cases now and um, it's a strange love language, but it's theirs and I really, really appreciate it. 
that is pretty much it. I Next season, like I said, there will be a couple twists, a couple little different things, a different theme, but it will all continue to be in the realm of true crime. And um, again, after season or episode 12, just know that I'll be taking a week off and you can totally check out any of the podcasts that I've suggested because I love putting people onto other podcasts outside of mine. And you can always go to IvanaEstelle.com to listen to some old episodes if you really miss me or my other work on my Let Me Humble You blog. Finally, usually I give a true crime fact, but I just want to tell a like 30 second story and then you guys can get rid of me. I was in class the other day. I have a digital organization class and we were talking about privacy and how, you know, just with tech these days, it'd be very, very invasive. You're always being tracked by an app. It just doesn't feel great. And just the fight against that. And I remember I was in class and I rose my hand and I was like, well, sometimes tracking is kind of important because a lot of people go missing or they're murdered and their last final steps are imperative and it takes police a while to get them because they don't have access to like their digital history or it takes a while to get their phone records etc and I remember being like the only person that came up with that thought and even the professor had kind of shut me down a bit and I felt really um bad and embarrassed at first and then I thought to myself no I mean, maybe one person needs to say it. And I'm going to continue this theme of the importance of looking out for each other and telling people where you are, keeping people in the loop. I know it's we want our privacy and we care about it so much. I get it. But these cases are reminders that we need to stay connected to some degree. And also, if you're like me right now and you feel sometimes that you're a little bit out of the box with your thinking or you kind of stand alone in some of your ideals and ideas, especially as long as they're not hurting anyone or negative to anyone, stand true to yourself and the things that you believe in and your opinions. It's okay to stand alone. It's okay if you get a little bit embarrassed because we need people to not all be in one box or think the same thing or agree because you want to pass a class or you want to stand out in a work meeting or you don't want to stand out at a work meeting, I should say. It's okay to be original. It's okay to be different. And like I said, a continued thank you. Thank you to everyone. I'm definitely going to thank people again for my final episode of the season. Uh, this is really important to me. This, God, I need to, I'm rambling now. This is really important to me what I do. I put a lot of effort and care in my writing and I care about every single case that I cover and every person that's involved it like becomes a part of me so thank you to people that have just like really stayed true and listened to me and watched me grow and give me feedback the good and the bad I appreciate it all with that being said go take a palate cleanser like I said check out my website for something lighter ivanaestelle.com please continue to follow me at ivanaestelle that's only one n on Instagram and then at Ivana Estelle True Crime on Instagram and TikTok. I need to get like my TikTok engagement up more. I don't know, but it's kind of hard making those. Anyone out there make TikToks? It, it's like not easy. And as always, uh, please leave a rating five stars. I can use it. And <laughs> check out my website to give me any feedback. You can always reach me there if you don't want to hit my socials. Whatever works, I love hearing from you guys. And I really care about you guys. And I'm just really appreciative that people are listening in. So with that being said, safe journey. Keep walking in the light. Until next time, with love, Ivana Estelle.